This is the American Psychological Association's Division 15 podcast series on emerging research in educational psychology. My name is Jeff Green. Thanks for joining us. In the United States, attention to racism at both the individual and systemic levels increased after the murder of George Floyd in 2020, but has since declined once more. Now, in 2024, there are an increasing number of calls and laws passed to limit discussions of racism in schools and other educational venues. These trends are just a few examples of the systemic, entrenched nature of racism. Creating a more just and liberatory society requires more than simply not acting in racist ways. It requires being anti-racist, something that is particularly difficult to do in many educational settings. So how exactly can educators push for such societal change, and what is required for them personally to adopt an anti-racist identity? Josie Vargas and Carrie Sedermo have written an article about the journey educators must make to become anti-racist, and I'm excited to talk to Josie today about that work. Dr. Jose H. Vargas is a critical social psychologist from California State University, Northridge. He is also a methodologist for the NIH Build Poder, a California State University Northridge undergraduate research training program for which he teaches, provides workshops, and writes manuscripts that transform how educators view science education and mentorship. Josie is an avid theorist and methodologist who gladly shares his expertise with others in the scientific community. He is also a part-time lecturer in the psychology department at California State University Northridge and a freelance diversity, equity, and inclusion consultant. Today, we're talking about Josie's 2024 article in Educational Psychologist entitled The Anti-Racist Educator's Journey and the Psychology of Critical Consciousness Development, A New Roadmap, which he co-authored with Carrie Sedermo. Josie, thank you for talking to me today, and thank you for writing this article. Uh, again, thank you for the invitation. So I, I want to make sure all our listeners are kind of on the same page, starting in the same place. So let's start with a foundational idea. Can you tell us what it means to be an anti-racist educator? There's no one definition or outlook for being an anti-racist educator. There are many elements that go into it. But if you want to kind of just start with some of the basics, you kind of hit it in your introduction. It's not enough to be non-racist. What's more important is actually taking an active hand in the dismantlement of racist structures. Mm-hmm. And so to be an anti-racist, it's a multi-layered phenomenon that includes your mindset, the way that you see yourself within the system, the extent to which you even recognize that the system you live in is structurally racist. Mm-hmm. It requires having an understanding of how your relationships with other humans are affected within these structures. It requires appreciating how we as human beings get into these different types of meaningful groups. These meaningful groups, we call them families, we call them peer groups, we may call them church groups. There are many, many of these, you know, small group type processes that are involved. And then there are the customs, the norms that guide the behaviors within these groups and and across groups. And these things are maintained by broader aspects of the culture that include not only our legal system, but our history. Mm -hmm. So anti-racism is really about not just not being racist. It's about being at the behavioral level, doing the actions to dismantle racism, but then also having that play out within relationships in small group settings at an institutional level. 
So it's it's very active. It's not just, as you said, the absence of something. It's active. It's sounds like it's multi-layered, multi-leveled. It's about the individual. It's about relationships with others. It's about relationship with society. It seems to have many different facets. Is that a fair characterization? Very fair. Uh, I think one of the issues in our society, and we kind of talk about this a little bit in the paper in Educational Psychologists, is that we are socialized in a very individualist society. The United States and, and nations like the United States put a lot of primacy on individualism. Mm-hmm. And through that process, we psychologically, interpersonally begin disconnecting ourselves from these broader social structures. Mm-hmm. So when we perceive something racist, we have the tendency to individualize the action. Mm. And so solutions to racism will also be individualized. So we've asked people, you know, to not be racist at the Mm. individual level, thinking that this will resolve something that is ultimately structural and something that is intergenerational. There's a historical and temporal dimension to this too. Mm. Racism has been, you know, part and parcel of the United States and many Western nations, especially those that experience settler colonialism. Mm -hmm. And because of a system that wants to detach us from that history, a system that operates to disconnect us from others, we often don't think of racism as a sociological phenomenon. Most people often think of racism as behavioral. It's the neo-Nazi, it's the Klansman, it's the person saying the N-word to someone. And therefore, racism is individual actions that are conducted by, quote-unquote, bad people. Hmm. And most humans are driven to be good. They don't want to be perceived as, quote-unquote, bad in the eyes of others, especially those others that are valued in their lives. Mm -hmm. And so... When it comes to issues of racism, the solutions have been very individualized and in a very, very specific way, it's taken the form of what we call color evasion, Mm -hmm. often referred to as color blindness. I don't use that term, but color evasion is it's the idea that if we just ignore the problem of race, then racism will go away. And I honestly cannot think of many problems that humans can solve by ignoring them. Yeah. I often use the analogy of a medical doctor who diagnoses someone with cancer. Mm. And if that doctor were to tell you, well, I believe the cure to your cancer is to ignore it. Mm-hmm. That proposal would sound very absurd. Sure. And yet we have absolutely no problem applying that logic when it comes to addressing the problem of structural racism. We will individualize it, and then we, at the individual level, prescribe a color-evasive strategy rather than a race-conscious strategy. And so that gets to that activity. And so that frames the goal of your article really well, this kind of anti-racist identity, this anti-racist perspective. I'm curious, like, what inspired you to write this particular manuscript? It depends on the starting point. I grew up in a family that fled the civil war in El Salvador in the 1980s. And I grew up with stories about social oppression and injustice. 
And in the same time, I've seen how within my family, you almost adjust to that reality. Mm. You, rather than to resist the reality, you make accommodations in order to survive. Mm-hmm. So growing up with those stories, I've always had this fascination with human relations and why do we have the conflicts that we do? When I began majoring in psychology as an undergraduate, though, I thought I was going to be a therapist. So the field itself wasn't making connections between what are psychologists studying and how can we address these larger social political problems? Mm-hmm. As you know, psychology is a very disposition oriented discipline. We stay locked in the mind mm-hmm. and we often don't connect the mind again to these interpersonal and broader social structures. Mm-hmm. So that is kind of the general foundation of, you know, what got me into social science. I then discovered social psychology and then realized the power of psychological research and that you can take this practice, this field to address these social political issues. Mm -hmm. I became very fascinated with inequities in the educational system because Mm -hmm. I started to see how many of the other issues that I care about issues about the climate, issues about access to healthcare, issues of war and genocide. Many of these things are traceable to problems in the ways that we engage in pedagogy with Hmm. our fellow human beings. Mm -hmm. And then getting more to the actual paper itself, I believe it was in 2021, my colleagues and I, Dr. Sadamo, as well as uh, Dr. Gabriela Chavira, we published this paper in Higher Education, the International Mm -hmm. Journal. Mm -hmm. And in this article, it's the first time that we're laying out this idea of looking at racism from an ecosystemic perspective. Long story short, someone found that article, they were CEOs of an education consulting firm, and they tend to work with K through 12 school districts throughout the country. And they had really enjoyed the article and wanted me to kind of do a keynote at one of their conferences. I had never given a keynote. Hmm. Awesome. So I felt there was some pressure to deliver, you know, something Mm -hmm. inspiring Mm -hmm. and and meaningful and actionable. Mm -hmm. And so that led me to expanding on the higher education article. And rather than looking at all of these ecosystems, I wanted to focus on the individual level. Ironically enough, for someone who is very interested in social structures, I wanted to begin by looking at that micro level, Mm -hmm. at the psychology of educators and what is happening within the psychology to contribute to educational inequities more broadly. Mm -hmm. All of a sudden, I started to see connections not only with liberation psychology, I've always been a fan of the humanities and Mm -hmm. the hero's journey. It was something I had encountered in graduate school and it always resonated with me, the idea of of storytelling and how there are certain, for lack of a better word, templates out there that that humans rely on to tell their stories. Humans are meaning makers. We we need to make sense out of our lived realities, the social structures that that we live in. Mm -hmm. So, those perspectives ended up kind of helping me not only highlight what are the key concepts 
that are involved in developing your race consciousness cognitively and then eventually identifying as an anti-racist heart and soul. Mm-hmm. And that really pushed me towards a little bit of Campbellian monomythic perspectives. Mm-hmm. I was able to kind of put these pieces together and all of a sudden the concepts made sense and the mm-hmm. concepts began to overlap and highlight patterns and themes mm-hmm. that eventually became this theory that we call the anti-racist educators journey. So we are encouraging educators to, in essence, develop an ecosystemic way of living and being in this world mm-hmm. because this perspective is an aspect of self-liberation. And we really can't address these structural issues without liberating the self first. Mm-hmm. But liberating the self is difficult. It's mm-hmm. painful. It's scary. It's a journey and it's lifelong. So I think it's really helpful for people to hear that it's a journey, that it's lifelong, that it can be difficult. Those are realities. And the way that you brought together these three perspectives, right? The ecological systems theory with the bi-directional ecosystems, the monomythic journeys, and the liberation psychology and processes. I mean, you've, you've blended those things really well and illustrated the complexities and the difficulties of doing this kind of work. And so I I think it's really helpful. And something else that you did in the paper that I thought was really useful was you coined this term. I I think you coined it. Correct me if I'm wrong. Ecosystem racism. Can you talk to us about that term? Yes. Ecosystemic racism is a term that my colleagues and I were were trying to get out there into the ether as as it were. Mm -hmm. Because it goes back to the argument that kind of began our conversation, which is the extent to which humans are socialized to have an ecosystemic perspective. Mm -hmm. And in an individualist society like the United States and other Western nations, that is not the norm. Mm -hmm. We are not raised to constantly think about how I am part of a larger system. I'm too busy trying to take care of my immediate needs, which could be, you know, finding food, maintaining a job, finding happiness, connection with family. Within the whirlwind of that life, in an individualist society, there's no encouragement. And for some people, there's no motivation or incentive to see the world through a structural lens. And so what I was encountering a lot in doing this work And you alluded also in the introduction that I also do anti-racist consulting work. Mm -hmm. And in that consulting work, what I was encountering a lot was, you know, the fact that most people can easily wrap their minds around what we call interpersonal racism. Mm -hmm. Again, the racism that is happening at the individual level. Again, the person who behaves in a racist way or says stereotypic things and acts on it. But when we start to talk about structural racism, the roles of laws, norms, customs, intergenerational histories, people have a harder time wrapping those ideas around their mind. Mm -hmm. And as such, there's limited appreciation for the interconnectedness between the individual and the structure. Mm -hmm. 
in the social sciences as well, we often, unfortunately, do a lot of dichotomous kind of thinking. Yeah. And so a lot of the research that I encounter, it rarely makes connections between racism happening at the behavioral level versus these forms of structural racism, which are outside of the control of any one individual or even one interest group. And for me, coming from an ecosystemic perspective, it seems almost intellectually dishonest to pit these two ideas of racism against each other. Right. To think that one is more valid than the other or that one perspective is likely to lead to better remedies for addressing racism than the other. Mm-hmm. Again, human beings are individuals that live in context. And you alluded to the bi-directional relationships between the individual and their context. And the individual and their context, they're not static entities. They are malleable. It's what developmental psychologists refer to as relative plasticity. Mm -hmm. So the individual, as well as the system, are in these continual states of flux. To the extent that there is alignment between an individual's lived experience and the conditions of the environment, it could lead to many developmental consequences, both good and not so good. And so for me, it is beneficial to think of this phenomenon of racism not as strictly an individual phenomenon or strictly a phenomenon due to structures and histories. All of those things are interconnected. And so I found it useful to come up with a term that lays it all out on the table. That a term that is trying to de-emphasize the false dichotomy between individual and systemic racism, but also enhance those two definitions by highlighting their bi-directionality. And it is through those bi-directional processes where we can find what we call ecosystemic anti-racist solutions. It's the Mm -hmm. opposite of ecosystemic racism. So ecosystemic racism, we define it as the multi-level as well as recursive relationships between the individual, their relationships, the institutions that house those relationships, the laws and norms and customs that support those institutions, and the broader culture and history. All of those things need to be considered as almost a unified construct if we are being authentic in doing anti-racist work. And I think this is, again, why becoming an anti-racist is very difficult because it involves attitudinal components. It involves cognitive components, literally reframing the way that we've been raised to think about what qualifies as racism and what doesn't qualify as racism. Ecosystemic racism, that term, is, is trying to highlight all of these multi-level processes so we can have the deeper conversation. And I really like how you've avoided that dichotomy of individual and societal, and you've adopted this ecological systems perspective of these dynamic interactions between the two. And I can imagine how those interactions do make it hard to be anti-racist because it's not just what you do as an individual, but it's also how you respond to the system, how you respond to injustices in the world. Um, all of that requires, uh, as you said, a real reframing of one's role and oneself. And in the article, you talked about 
how people have a race consciousness continuum. And can you help our listeners understand that continuum and how it relates to what you're talking about? Yeah. When I refer to the race consciousness continuum, I'm really referring to the more mental cognitive process. And one way that we can think about this continuum is, again, breaking down that dichotomy of there, there's a world of racists and then there's a world of non-racists. And the world is that neat, but it isn't. Right. And the reality is that our, like with many aspects of human behavior, human cognition, human attitudes, many of these things are not categorical constructs, so to speak. These are phenomena that fall along a spectrum or a continuum. And so it's useful to think about development of an anti-racist identity from a spectrum approach. Where are individuals within the spectrum? And at one extreme, we have what we can think of, again, as the stereotypic racist. The idea of, you know, the racist that most individuals think about when this conversation comes up. Again, the neo-Nazi, the Klansman. And we kind of term this category of race consciousness development as category zero at the lowest end, where people... It's not that they're unaware of racism, it's that they're actually quite aware of their own racism and lean into it, they're proud of it. So this is a different category of individual, and they exist, and unfortunately, we do have educators that fall along that part of the continuum. Mm -hmm. But what we argue is that most educators, and there's research to back this up, most educators are what we call race disconscious. This is different than racism. Mm -hmm. Racism at the individual level is deliberate. Mm -hmm. Race disconsciousness is an absence of awareness. It's the fact that you don't know that you don't know something. Mm -hmm. And that places the individual in a very different psychological and interpersonal position. And within this disconscious aspect of the continuum, there's nuance. There are folks that will lean in more on ideas of cultural supremacy. Mm -hmm. They are in disagreement with the idea of racism and they don't like racists, but they are unaware that they are buying into certain ideologies like assimilation. And assimilation only exists in a context where there is the presumption that one culture is superior to the other. Mm -hmm. So unlike the category zero racist who believes more in biological or religious supremacy, the racist conscious individual is so attached to their culture that they are in a place where they can't appreciate that their own culture is racist. Because we are motivated to see our culture as, as something positive. It's an aspect of our social identity. Rarely do human beings desire to integrate something negative into their sense of self. It's not that it doesn't happen, but that's often not what motivates most human beings. Most human beings want to have positive elements comprise their sense of self and their identity. Mm -hmm. And so being racist is negative. So you don't want to integrate that into your self-concept. But to then understand that you are a product of a racist structure, all of a sudden that throws a wrench into your self-construction. And it starts to generate certain anxieties or concerns about who you really are. 
in this society. Mm -hmm. And for the racist conscious person to reconcile that it's easier to ask marginalized people to just become one of them. Mm. Not because we believe that we're biologically or religiously superior. It's just that we think our culture is better. We have better ideas. We, especially in the Western world, I constantly hear the stereotype of every modern technology that exists only came out of the Western world. If it wasn't for the Western world, we'd still be living in teepees and huts. Mm. Not realizing that that rhetoric is extremely racist and, and right. system enhancing. Right. But then we have the other extreme, which is becoming aware of your disconsciousness and then reaching a level of awareness where you can consciously think about anti-racist behaviors. Not only are you aware now of how certain forms of racism manifest, you can then begin taking actions against those processes. And you identify with those actions. You identify with the possibility of dismantling a system that you have begun to recognize is inherently unfair from the get-go. That, that was a, a super clear explanation. I can tell that you do consulting work because you're really good at talking about these complex issues. Um, in the paper, you connect that continuum to the phenomenological variant of ecological systems theory, which I think is a really wonderful way to make connections between systems and people and how they develop and that kind of thing. And, and you develop these themes about what educators need to know, like ecosystems, and they need to be race conscious, they need to acquire an ecosystemic lens. And you outline in the paper, this kind of four phase liberation model, and it's got kind of 15 different developmental phases of how educators can get there, kind of um, how they can get from the first phase or component all the way to the end. And, you know, we probably don't have time to talk about all 15 developmental phases. I really encourage our listeners to, to read your article and check it out carefully. But can you talk to us about the four phases of liberation in general and kind of what that journey looks like? Yes. So we kind of took some of this terminology from different sources in both liberation psychology as well as indigenous research. Mm -hmm. So the, this idea of four phases of liberation isn't necessarily a completely original model. Okay. At the same time, what we're trying to argue through this paper is that we want to think about, again, this consciousness continuum being a developmental process. And not just any ordinary developmental process, it's a developmental process implicating identity formation. Mm. And so the way that we laid out the four phases of liberation, which we call awareness, deconstruction, reconstruction, and praxis, all of these phases happen when the educator is in a different phase in their life or in a different part of this journey. And so I would argue, as my co-author and I have in some of the follow-up papers we're working on, we are arguing that the you can think of the first two phases, awareness and deconstruction, as a critical look backward and inward. Mm. So with awareness, we begin by learning about racism, racist ideologies like individualism, meritocracy, color evasion, there's a host of these types of what we call dominant ideologies, the, the majoritarian narratives that keep the system in place or and that prevent people from challenging the status quo. 
So the awareness phase is looking backwards at that history. Where did we as a society come from? Phase two is then bringing in the self, looking inward mm-hmm. and relating the self to the past. So if the past, we know through historical records that this concept of race is fairly new in human history. It was developed by lawyers and politicians for the intentional purpose of creating a race-based power hierarchy where wealthy white landowners are at the top and everybody else is at the bottom. Being aware of those things in phase one is helpful, but then the challenge happens in phase two, which is how do you connect yourself to that system? And that part is painful. Mm -hmm. My co-author and I believe that Phase two is perhaps the hardest of the phases Hmm. because it's so personal that people want to give up or Hmm. revert back to what feels comfortable. Hmm. But if you're able to get past those personal challenges at the end of deconstruction, what we call challenging the shadow self, if you're able to challenge the shadow self, you can emerge as a reborn individual with new ideas, new cognitive structures, new attitudes, new interpersonal behaviors that are beneficial towards an anti-racist social movement. Mm -hmm. And so the final two phases, reconstruction and praxis, that involves a critical look forward into the future and outward Mm -hmm. beyond the self into the society. Mm -hmm. And reconstruction involves envisioning an anti-racist set of behaviors. And those can be pedagogical and they can emerge in various contexts in our classrooms, in our mentoring relationships, when we work with students, uh, maybe on a more personal basis, Mm -hmm. with our interactions with fellow coworkers in educational settings. All of us can work together to reimagine the current system and, and envision a future that doesn't yet exist. That's the Mm -hmm. challenge, but that's also the purpose of praxis. When we work together to re-envision a new future with egalitarian relationships at the heart of human affairs, then we can start doing what we call praxis. We can begin affecting actual change in the context, in the environment. Maybe this is a simplistic way of thinking about it. It just popped into my head right now. But it's almost like awareness and deconstruction is definitely a little bit more on the individual side of the individual context relationship. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And reconstruction and praxis really starts to bring in more of the context okay. within that bi-directional relationship. Mm-hmm. So in short, we can think of these four phases of liberation as, again, a process of looking backwards into our history and connecting our humanity to that history. And through that painful process, emerging as a more knowledged and human person, mm-hmm. you've now reconnected to your own humanity, and now you can look forward into possible futures and outward into your relationships with your students, your relationships mm-hmm. with your colleagues, the mm-hmm. policies and practices that we allow institutions to engage in, and even the very policies and laws that we construct to drive our educational systems more broadly. That's a a really helpful description of this process and the journey. And there's, there's much more to it in in the article, as I said. Um, But I, 
I really liked how you emphasize this kind of in, internal inward looking piece and then this kind of looking out and this reconstruction and praxis piece. And what I thought was particularly interesting in your article was that you described this journey and this process of liberation for both educators of color and white educators. So can you talk to us a little bit about the similarities and differences for those different groups? Yeah, I always hesitate a bit when we use these broad categorical terms like mm-hmm. ed, you know, educators of color, because mm-hmm. there are many, many, many nuances within that categorization. Not all people of color are created equal in many ways. And not all people of color share the same ethno histories that, mm-hmm. that inform their current conditions. Mm-hmm. And the same thing can be said about white educators. There are various ways that whiteness gets defined and acted upon. Mm-hmm. And there's a need to acknowledge those nuances. But we also need to be a little bit practical, especially when, as social scientists, we're trying to really discuss what are inherently dense, complex, again, multi-layered concepts. And it is helpful sometimes to have these categorizations. So some of the similarities between, you know, white educators and educators of color who want to venture through this kind of journey is one that we all share the same broader ecosystems. Mm -hmm. If you're living in the United States, whether you want it to be so or not, you've been raced. Mm -hmm. And what I mean by that is, again, challenging that individualist idea of race. Many people think that race is a biological thing that you are born with, Mm -hmm. as opposed to a social construct that was ascribed to you at the moment of birth or at the moment of immigration if you weren't born in this country but then came here. Even if you were not born in the United States, the moment that you move here, you become raced, whether you want to accept that or not. Mm -hmm. And so those are some of the common realities that white educators and educators of color experience. Now, what are some features of this common context? I alluded to one of those earlier is dominant ideologies. It's these cultural messages that were really created by the dominant group to keep everyone believing that the system is fair. And so we have ideologies, again, like individualism. So if you work hard enough, you'll succeed. And if you don't succeed, you as an individual messed up somehow. So the onus is on you. The system is not to blame whatsoever. Very close to that idea is meritocracy, pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps. And those that succeed had this quality called merit. And if you don't have merit, then you can be treated differently than if you do have merit. We will literally give people different forms of respect and attention and care on the basis of whether you have this thing called merit. But then we have, again, color evasion, especially, you know, post-civil rights movement. There was a big push, mainly among, you know, white liberal circles, that the best way to address racism is to avoid bringing up race and making all policy race neutral. Not acknowledging the fact that the system itself is already racist, though. And so those are some of the kind of commonalities that educators of color and white educators share. But it will also manifest differently. So, for instance, a theme that's recurrent in 
not just this article, but in a lot of the articles that my colleagues and I have been working on with regards to this research program is this idea of system justification. Mm. That because of these messages that we've grown up with, these dominant ideologies, we have been practicing scripts our whole lives, not realizing we've been practicing these scripts to keep the system in place. Mm -hmm. So when things don't go our way, we might be able to rationalize it somehow. When we experience racism ourselves, we might be able to dismiss it as something other than racism, something other than what it actually was. Because to do so provides a sense of security, a sense that the world is still fair and that you have a space in it. But this system justification is going to manifest differently if you are in a dominant group versus being in the subordinate group. If you are in the dominant group, your sense of self, which is your ego, and your sense of belongingness to your immediate groups, that's your group justification, that is in alignment with the broader values of the culture or what we call system justification. So for most white people, ego justification, group justification, system justification, they are all in alignment and they are mm. all saying, yeah, I work hard enough. I succeeded. Others that didn't work as hard as I did don't succeed. It's their fault. And the system is fair the way it works or else I wouldn't have succeeded. And because of my success, there is no reason why the system should be changed. It's working exactly the way it should to favor me. If you're an educator of color or just a person of color in general, you do not have that alignment. Mm -hmm. Your sense of self, who you are authentically, your sense of connection with your immediate group, which could be ethnic, it could also be religious, and your connection with the broader system, they're all in discord. Because you want to be your authentic self, you want to appreciate the group you belong to because that group socialized you gave you experiences that were positive that you do internalize and value. And at the same time, you realize you live in this system that has told you that you don't belong or that you have come to feel you don't belong to. Those differences will lead to distinct behavioral manifestations for white educators and educators of color. And that's just looking at things at the behavioral level. We can also look at things at the interpersonal level, mm -hmm. the fact that white people, again, get treated differently than people of color. And a white educator who wants to do this anti-racist work may be, by virtue of their dominant status, in a safer position to engage in the anti-racist work than a educator of color mm -hmm. who might be called out for playing the race card, which happens a lot, or whose ideas may be belittled or seen, again, as contrary to the mainstream. And so educators of color can easily get dismissed or pushed out of the system, so to speak. So those similarities and differences, I think, are really important to highlight. And I'm glad that you did. And I'm glad that your article does that. And you know, as, as our listeners dive into your article, they'll see for each component there are these similarities and differences and they affect the journey differently. So that's important to know. So if you had to think about the article overall and kind of your message to readers, what would that be in a, in a kind of a 30,000 foot level? So one of the reasons that I wrote this article, I, I did explain how it was inspired, but uh, what I neglected to mention 
was again the on the ground experiences I was having with fellow educators who found these ideas interesting, but I always received the same kind of comment, which is, okay, if I were to do this, what's going to happen to me? Mm -hmm. And I think that's a totally human response to have whenever you are going to venture into something unknown, there's going to be trepidation. There's going to be fear and anxiety and desires to put those thoughts out of your mind and, and to continue going with life the way it is. Unfortunately, educators like us, we have privileges too. And we need to acknowledge that as educated individuals, there's a power and privilege that comes with that. And with that power and privilege, we have a responsibility to other humans, mm-hmm. not just in our educational spaces, but but more broadly. And so if you're going to take this journey, the, the anti-racist educator's journey is a roadmap for you. Right. You may not go through all of the things that we talk about in that article, you may go from one component to a completely different component. You may go back and forth. So this isn't something that you're just moving forward all the time. Mm-hmm. And that that's okay. Right. Because you're human. Mm-hmm. We're, we're imperfect. Mm-hmm. The goal for us in perfect human beings is to just try to create that more perfect person, the more perfect relationship the more perfect institution and the more perfect society. And the anti-racist educator's journey is your road to doing something like that. Mm -hmm. And and as educators, it's our duty to do so. Mm -hmm. Great. So as we kind of wrap up thinking about your article, I'm curious as to what are some future directions for research or practice that you're excited about? You know, interestingly enough, it took a few years to get those first two papers out I think there was a lot of thought that went into it. Amazing comments from reviewers, including the reviewers from educational psychologists. In large part, those comments that made this paper, I think, what it is. So I want to take this time at least to thank the reviewers for those contributions, as well as the editors. But now we, by we, I mean uh, Dr. Satermo, myself, as well as two other colleagues, we actually have three other papers that are either in their first round of submission or in the revise and resubmit stage. Oh, cool. And they are all trying to get closer to the practical elements of what our theory says. So we're trying to move away, not in a bad way, but we, we're trying to expand beyond pure theory mm-hmm. and linking these things into actual tangible practices. Mm-hmm. So for example... One of the papers that we're working on right now is aimed at leadership specifically. Mm. And what we're asking leaders to do is to acknowledge that as leaders, they establish the tenor of campus cultures and that their executive decisions shape educational policy and practices in ways that can either hinder or advance the academic success of marginalized students. Mm -hmm. So leaders are, they are in these powerful positions to modify ecosystems that are inherently unjust. But unfortunately, the typical reaction of leadership is not to challenge the status quo. For many reasons, I understand at the practical level, you know, leaders are humans. They, They have a portfolio that they want to develop. They have their own professional goals that they want to meet. They're also humans that live in these ecosystems and are affected by policies and laws beyond their control. 
Mm-hmm. And at the same time, it's the inaction from leadership, we argue, that has resulted in these cultural discontinuities between the values of students who are marginalized and the larger values of university campuses or college campuses. Mm-hmm. So there's a cultural mismatch between the values students are bringing in who are marginalized again and what the system expects of them. So we're trying to reach educational leadership with these concepts, talking about the individual, interpersonal, and institutional elements that contribute to a culturally incongruent educational experience for marginalized students. Another paper that we are working on is taking the idea of the educator's journey and creating modules out of this knowledge. And my team and I, we've succeeded in developing these modules that can be done online. And in essence, it's, for lack of a better word, a type of training for educators who want to bring in what we call liberatory race conscious mentorship into their research labs, into their classrooms, into their interactions with students. And liberatory race conscious mentorship entails many of the elements that we discuss in the anti-racist educators journey. And so the goal is to eventually have folks either as individuals or institutions take these modules and hopefully begin the process of creating a, a critical mass of educators who have been exposed to this rarely discussed knowledge and uncomfortable knowledge, but nevertheless coming out at the end as a critical mass of social change agents. They can begin to do small things in their classrooms, but then they can begin to team up with fellow educators who have gone on this journey. And before you know it, we can create a tipping point where we may not be the majority, but there's enough of us now that you can't quiet these voices and you'll have to listen and change will have to come. And so we're trying to kind of help institutions reach that tipping point through these modules. And lastly, there's a paper that we're writing to teachers in general, K through 19, about Mm -hmm. actual behaviors you can do as an individual, as beings in a relationship, as well as institutions in a system. And in that paper, we're offering 12 very specific actions that involve things like creating group circles, discussions around these very sensitive topics, creating these affinity groups Hmm. where individuals have the space to be their authentic selves as they are doing the deconstruction work that comes with anti-racism. Again, my colleague and I believe that deconstruction is the hardest of the phases. Right. And so we are trying to really focus in that domain of the liberatory experience. Mm -hmm. And so these papers that we are working on are trying to get at the tangibles of something that for the most part right now is mainly theoretical. Well, it sounds like amazing work. uh, And I I really appreciate you and your colleagues for doing it. And I think it's, it's a really logical next step to go from what is a very rich and deep theory and theoretical perspective to kind of the practice and the how-to and the implications. So, so thank you for doing all of that. Let's let's pivot. You know, our our listeners often are thinking about trying to write a manuscript for educational psychologist, and they often are eager to hear from people who have been successful. Like any tips or advice. So, do you have anything you'd like to share with our listeners if they're thinking about trying to write a manuscript for our journal? I think lean into the comments from the reviewers. Okay. 
as I alluded to earlier, the paper that brought me to this podcast today, it would not be what it is without the incredible feedback from reviewers. And, you know, sometimes the feedback can be pretty extensive. (laughs) I believe I had four reviewers for this paper, and that does not include the editor. Mm -hmm. And so there were many, many different ideas that needed to be juggled and at the same time, maintain the integrity of your own work. Right. And and so for me, what I would recommend to scholars who want to publish in educational psychologists is first off, you know, go to the website and make sure that the ideas you're generating fit with the mission and, and the broader aims and scope of the journal. But once you're in the process, lean into that expertise from the reviewers. I don't know how your review process works in terms of the specifics, but clearly you have access to individuals who may not necessarily be talking about what I am talking about in this paper, but they have a vast knowledge into many of the concepts that were being discussed in the anti-racist educator's journey. Mm -hmm. And so being open to integrating those ideas, what I would recommend is even if you need to go back to the drawing board a little bit, mm-hmm. it's that itself is worth the journey Okay, because it forced me to connect some of the ideas that I had with ideas that have been articulated and advanced by predecessors mm-hmm. whose voices do matter in this scientific process. Science is something that is evolving. We should be building on top of the expertise of our predecessors. So to me, that was probably the most pleasant part of the review experience. Also the most stressful, (laughs) but two things can coexist at the same time. Yeah, Uh, And so that's my recommendation. Lean into that discomfort a little bit. It's worth the journey at the end. Great. Well, thank you. That, that's that's good advice. I'm glad to hear that you found the reviews helpful. And I, I do think our journal is fortunate to have uh, just a, a great editorial board and a number of ad hoc reviewers who are just real experts in the field and, and take a benevolent approach to the manuscripts. So I'm glad that you had a good experience. So let's wrap it up there for today. I encourage our listeners to check out Josie's 2024 article in Educational Psychologist entitled The Anti-Racist Educator's Journey and the Psychology of Critical Consciousness Development, A New Roadmap. Josie, again, thanks so much for talking to me about your article today. Thank you for the invitation. It was a pleasure to be here with you. And finally, to you, our listener, if you enjoy the podcast, please check out our other episodes. You can get them on your favorite podcast app. Please consider reading and reviewing us. And you can always go to our APA Division 15 website where all the podcasts are linked in the publication section. So thanks again for listening.